episode 22 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I am Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, I'm not going to lie to you, it's going to get strange. I hope you have seen the 1989 version of Batman. If not, you may be lost, but I promise you'll learn something about NASCAR. We will tie it all in. And of course, we'll take a ride on the carousel and talk about Sonoma this weekend. But first, as always, this is episode 22 of Positive Regression. This, David, is the Joey Logano edition. Joey Logano in the 22, to me, David, represents nothing, honestly, but positivity. I mean, Logano had sort of been branded uh, as, uh, you know, he was sliced bread early in his career. It didn't immediately come to fruition because he, you know, was an 18 year old, a young driver. He moves over to the 22 and suddenly, Sliced bread becomes everything you would always expect him to be. Daytona 500 wins, all sorts of wins, and a championship last year. Him and the 22 have a good, solid identity together. And that's what I think of when I think of young Joey Logano. That is a great point. 21 of his 23 career NASCAR Cup Series wins have come in the Penske 22. And that's no surprise, uh, really. We've talked about on this podcast how age 24 is the typical light switch for young Cup Series drivers. And as it would go, 20 of his 23 wins came in his age 24 season or after. So his time at Penske just kind of coalesced with the time when drivers usually kick on. But I'm glad you brought that up, Alan. Uh, We should point out Team Penske hired him at a time when the industry consensus was that after all this hype and the nicknames and the wins and lower divisions, he was a little bit of a bust. He was performing worse for Joe Gibbs Racing as a young 20-something than Tony Stewart did as a two-time champion. And in retrospect, oh my God. that seems pretty <laughs> stupid, right? But um I'll point out he's scored a peer better than average for his age in every season of his career before this one, and he's well on his way to doing it again, but that includes the bad years at Joe Gibbs Racing. I I think the industry misevaluated him. Alan, I think he taught a lot of people in and around NASCAR that we shouldn't be so quick to write off a struggling young driver, Uh, and that is in large part because of the work he has done in the 22 car. He was good all along, just needed the time to develop, and that's what JGR uh, gave him, and Penske is reaping the rewards. Yeah, you think back, and uh, in his words, Joey Logano was fired and or offered a nationwide ride. That's what he told me once. Uh, instead of his cup ride that he was already in at Joe Gibbs Racing, he was offered a nationwide ride and gladly didn't take it. And remember the odd circumstances that led to the 22 even being open. AJ Allmendinger making a, a really poor decision. And without that, you know, is the 22 of Penske ever there for Joey Logano? And think of everything that's gone right for Logano in the 22 since then. It's just crazy to think how the universe works sometimes. Yeah. And we, we talked a little bit about some, some backlash, but you, Mr. Diehard Rusty Wallace fan, please tell me that you recall Rusty Wallace on a pre-race show on ESPN going ballistic about Roger Penske hiring Joey Logano 
instead of Sam Hornish. <laughs> Please tell me you remember this hot take because to me that, oh, oh, that was a gorgeous moment. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's kind of what I think of, of Logano being doubted going in the 22 car. And, and now in, in retrospect, it, it made all the sense. I can't imagine Rusty would ever say anything like that. So I'm just <laughs> going to ignore that that may have ever happened. Oh, well, <laughs> look, I, I, I am glad to see that it has worked out well for Joey Logano. He is an entertaining young driver. He is, uh, the latest in a long line of clean air assassins to come in, uh, to NASCAR. I think he's taken over that mantle from Carl Edwards and we saw how good he was out front at Michigan. Uh, lots of stuff going on behind him, but he could not be touched. Uh, and if I may, that, that yellow and red number 22 car, I don't know if it's the best paint scheme, but I would argue it's the most recognizable and a, uh, a weary set of eyes like mine watching 500 mile races, uh, in repeated viewings appreciates a car that can quickly be identified. Man, you and I have a connection because I was going to bring that up. Slowly but surely, in an era where sponsorships are always changing, Joey Logano and the 22 Pennzoil is going, will go down as one of those iconic paint schemes you kind of always remember because it hasn't changed over the years really that much. I mean, Earnhardt's good wrench black car, you know what I mean? Jimmy Johnson in the 48, Jeff Gordon with DuPont, uh, Pennzoil 22 and Joey Logano. That is, that is, will go down as an iconic paint scheme in NASCAR history. Pretty cool. Moving on. We have always promised to get weird, to get strange, David, on this podcast. And we, uh, we're going to live up to that hype right now. Let me tell you, because would, would, would you say, would you say that we're about to get we're, nuts? Oh, my God. oh man. Yes. We are about to get nuts because this week, oh, well, that was good. This week marks the 30th anniversary of the 1989 film Batman. So, uh, David, we had some behind the scenes tidbits that we think contain some parallels to NASCAR. Again, the 1989 film Batman, I don't know how you and I got talking about this one day, but we are of a similar age. And when that movie came out, just, you know, in my life, it was so significant in terms of how cool it was, what a great movie it was. This was, I was a kid. It was Batman. This was a big deal. And you shared the same love of this movie. Somehow we both figured that out. And now we are dedicating nearly an entire podcast to the movie and how it applies to NASCAR. I don't know how we got here. For our listeners, let me preface, uh, this segment, if you haven't seen this movie, I don't think you'll be lost. There, there are no spoilers here. I'll say that. Um, but this is all behind the scenes, inside Hollywood type stuff. So stick with us. I, I think this will be fun. Uh, I have five tidbits. Alan and I are going to try to find NASCAR parallels for each. I'll kick it off right now, Alan. Tidbit number one, comedic actor Michael Keaton. He of Mr. Mom and Beetlejuice, which was a very popular movie, uh, was cast as Batman. And the backlash from fans was, oh, uh, quite large, quite loud, but his portrayal was iconic and the movie made a lot of money and all of this helped quiet the doubters. So NASCAR parallel, Alan Kavana. Which NASCAR driver received backlash upon his hiring only to prove the haters wrong? I think this one was easy, right? The first thing that popped up in my head 
is young Alex Bowman. And I say that because when you think about backlash, you think about how loud a backlash can be. And you think about the fan base that was there for the 88. Yes, the Dale Earnhardt Jr. fan base, who all had a very large opinion about who should replace their favorite driver in the number 88. And when Alex Bowman was announced, there were plenty of haters wondering, who is this kid? Why is he deserving of such a Hendrick ride so early right now, replacing Dale Earnhardt? And I think so far, given how Hendrick has performed as a organization over the last few years, I think Alex Bowman is proving the haters wrong, especially now that we are into his second season full time and he is coming into his own his last few weeks. I mean, most immediately he's had a few bad weeks, but this, this stretch to start the season where he started the season and where he's been able to do in points with three consecutive second place finishes and just accumulating so many points to a position where he's really not in a playoff bubble even anymore. I mean, that's how good he is doing. And he made the playoffs last year. I think that's all you can ask of the young man. He will start winning soon, I believe. And I believe he's proving the haters wrong, especially when after the announcement, replacing such a large popular driver in an important ride. I think he's proven the haters wrong, David. I was probably one of those haters. Not that I hate Alex Bowman, but I did uh, strongly question his hiring because at that time, uh, Brad Keselowski and Matt Kenseth were free agents to be. And this is Hendrick Motorsports, you think very highly of their place in the NASCAR market, why couldn't they attract a better driver? So from that standpoint, it was puzzling. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, Alan, the news of Nationwide Insurance uh, leaving soon after this season as the primary sponsor of the 88 car, if it cut short Bowman's time at Hendrick Motorsports, do you feel he has done enough I think he should get okay. some wins, but look, who who is one in his tenure at Hendrick Motorsports? Chase Elliott. That's it. Jimmy Johnson has not won in his tenure at Hendrick Motorsports. William Byron has not won there either. So you can't just point to him and say, look, the rest of the team is doing it. You're not holding up your end of the bargain, Alex. How about you? Okay, well, there are a couple of examples that come to mind. Uh, we talked about Joey Logano being hired by Penske at the top of this episode. Uh, Casey Kane hired by Everham Motorsports to replace Bill Elliott at a time when he hadn't even won an Xfinity series race. That was, that was something. But look, I'm comparing this driver to Michael Keaton. In my mind, Michael Keaton is one of the greatest American treasures of, uh, film and stage, right? Come on. Jimmy Johnson. Hired in 2001 by Hendrick Motorsports after only winning just one Xfinity race. If you remember back that far, there were a lot of people who thought that he was just a clean-cut, good-looking white guy in the mold of Jeff Gordon. And that was it, just a marketing tool. But as it turns out, the folks at Hendrick and Chevrolet, lest we forget he was a Chevrolet development driver, those folks knew something most on the outside did not. Jimmy Johnson was a winner in his rookie season. He is now tied with Cale Yarbrough on the all-time wins list, along with seven championships. Allen, he's one of the greatest drivers to have ever graced a NASCAR track. But I keep thinking about that first year. He, he had that early success. It was Racer Magazine, the cover with the line, who in the hell is Jimmy <laughs> Johnson? Uh, okay, so tidbit number two. Let's talk about the uh, the other star in this movie. 
Jack Nicholson. He was cast as the Joker. He was actually the first member of the cast announced, and he gave the film some legitimacy. I mean, everyone associated Batman with the 1966 TV show that was campy and comedic. And here's Jack Nicholson, Academy Award-winning actor, being cast as the villain. His pay for doing the Batman movie was $6 million up front during a time when he supposedly was commanding $10 million per film. To close the gap in pay, he was given a percentage of the back end, which is a a popular negotiating tactic in Hollywood. Uh, He would take a percentage of the total earnings of the film and merchandise sales. And what a score. When all was said and done, counting the residuals, Nicholson has earned over $100 million for playing the Joker. What a payday. Which NASCAR driver took a risk with a team on the front end only to be rewarded handsomely? First thing that came to my mind was Kevin Harvick. When he moved to SHR, that was a brand new team that they built over there with Rodney Childers. Yes, it was a good organization, of course. But I think that was something of a risk going into the unknown to a new organization. Kevin Harvick had had success with RCR, but never had that championship, which to him was all the reason to jump ship and go to another team. But you're going into the unknown. You didn't, who knew Rodney Childers would be that good and that building from zero, building from scratch, an entire new team would result immediately in all those wins and a championship. I think Kevin Harvick took a risk. Same with Martin Truex. Martin Truex Jr. maybe didn't have as many options, remember, after the Michael Waltrip racing uh, debacle and scandal and everything. He didn't have many places to go, but he goes over to Furniture Row Racing, a team that had, one, I think, one win in its entire history's organization and then ends up nailing it at the right time between Cole Pern, Toyota, and all that stuff. I mean, talk about being rewarded for taking a risk and going out to the small Colorado team. I think you could certainly argue Truex, uh, that that was a big gamble that paid off. And most recent, I'm going to go with Tyler Reddick, David, because Tyler Reddick wins a championship in what is one of the strongest uh, Xfinity Series organizations, Hendrick-affiliated, all that jazz. And I, I know there were times last year where didn't think didn't look like he was on his way to winning a title, but he did. Uh, I think after the, he announced he was moving over to RCR, that's when it really got going for him over at Junior Motorsports last year in that title run. But he goes over to RCR, a team last year that didn't have a ton of speed, didn't have a ton of wins, and look what he's doing with it right now. Maybe he knew something we didn't, but he just had a string of top fives from you know early March to mid-April, and only a tire, a bad tire took him out in Iowa, or he probably would have extended that. So. Uh, those are my three examples for drivers that took a little risk and were handsomely rewarded so far. Those are three really good answers. And I didn't even think about Martin Truex. I'm kind of kicking myself. But to me, my answer, it, it, it feels obvious to me. The only way anyone was going to pry Tony Stewart from Joe Gibbs Racing was to give him an ownership stake in the organization, and that's exactly what Gene Haas did. Do you remember oh, Haas yeah. CNC Racing during this time? They were trotting out yep. Johnny Sauter, Jeff Green, Scott Riggs, yep. Jeff Green. Yeah, before scoring Stewart in the recruitment of all recruitments, we'll call it. Uh, Tony Stewart is now, by definition, a two-time championship-winning 
team owner. How crazy is that? Considering how competitive this organization has become in recent seasons, uh, he probably owes a lot to the success that you mentioned of Kevin Harvick and Rodney Childers, but Stewart landed himself a fine nest egg in the form of Stuart Haas Racing. Remember him leaving JGR? We we all kind of thought that she was unfathomable going to this small Haas CNC team. Yeah, little did we know. They they had that all planned out. A quick uh, relationship with Hendrick Motorsports to get their cars up and running quickly. They uh, secured Ryan Newman going into that first season. And uh, man, what a what a call! What a what a career defining decision. Yeah, by good, Tony good risk, good reward there. Uh, tidbit number three, Alan. I, I, you're going to have to be an eagle eye to catch him in the uh, in the second Batman movie, but he was in there. But he was a little bit more prominent in the first. The role of District Attorney Harvey Dent was given to none other than Billy D. Williams. Lando Calrissian himself was playing Harvey Dent. Batman fans know Dent uh, eventually becomes Two-Face, one of Batman's greatest and most complex villains. And it was rumored then, and Billy D has since confirmed it, he was promised in a future film that he would become Two-Face. But a change in uh, the director's chair for this uh, Batman franchise from Tim Burton to Joel Schumacher meant a change in the actor playing Harvey Dent. Tommy Lee Jones went on to play Dent and Two-Face in the film Batman Forever, meaning Billy D didn't get his uh didn't get the moment he was promised. Alan, is there a parallel here? Brad Kislowski moving over to Hendrick. Um I, I apologize if I don't have the facts exactly correct, but remember he was in that organization coming up through Junior Motorsports in the Hendrick pipeline, did a lot of races in the 25 in the GoDaddy car way before uh, Miss Danica joined the sport and the plan was to replace Mark Martin and be a part of Hendrick Motorsports, be one of their big four drivers. And then at some point, Mark Martin decided, rightly, or well, he at least decided, I'm not going to retire. Do you remember, David, when Rusty Wallace and Mark Martin were given rocking chairs for their retirement, and then Mark Martin coming out and saying, yeah, no, I'm not going to do this, and then went on to have a successful run uh, after that, and that included his time that he decided to stay with Hendrick Motorsports. Look, you could argue, I mean, it was a good decision. They ended up getting wins, a a championship contender with Mark Martin behind the wheel. But the plan was, as it goes, that Brad Keselowski was in that pipeline. And by denying that move in the year that it was supposed to happen, it kind of changed everything. Now, fortunately for Brad Keselowski, it changed it for the better in hindsight, obviously with Team Penske, his own identity, a championship, all the wins later. But I have to imagine there were some odd, tough, questionable times as to what the hell Brad was going to do now that that Hendrick ride, that um, you know, it was like playing for the Yankees. Imagine having your lineup in the Yankees promised to you right there in your future, and then all of a sudden it's not there anymore. That's what happened to Brad Kozlowski. I also have an example that involves huh. Mark Martin, but it's not What have you done, one. Mark Martin? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, in, in, in what became, uh, as you mentioned, the first of Mark Martin's many farewell tours, uh, it was announced that he would be replaced at Roush Fenway Racing by the winner of the Roush Gong Show, 
And that was, of course, Todd <laughs> Cleaver. Well, a funny thing happened uh, on the way to uh, the ensuing season's Daytona 500. No one at Roush was very enthusiastic about Cleaver's output in the Xfinity series. So they quickly backtracked and made David Reagan the new replacement. Reagan's gone on to have a long career in NASCAR, much longer than I probably would have guessed he'd have, uh, but certainly longer than Cleaver. Uh, Cleaver, by the way, won at Madison Speedway in Wisconsin last year in a late model truck. I guess it could have been worse, but I, look, I mean, even one mediocre season in the Cup Series might have punched his ticket to a lengthy stay in the NASCAR ranks during a time where drivers were getting capital P paid. Final tidbit. Actor William Hootkins played Lieutenant Eckhart uh, in the movie Batman. Hootkins uh, in his life was a man walking through multiple blockbuster movies. He had a small role in the first Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he was Porkins in the original Star Wars. Not a bad career. Uh, only three of the biggest movies of all time. Let's let's try to find a parallel here, Alan. Uh, which person in the NASCAR industry served as a commonality or mainstay to I several two answers successful for this one. First one teams? that came up uh, to me is Ray Evernham. Okay, because of what he did at Hendrick and the success he had bringing up Jeff Gordon and all the uh, innovation and all the success and the wins. And then taking a risk. We talked about risk before. Uh, you know, I'm sure there was a financial reward to it, but. Uh, leaving Jeff Gordon or making deciding to leave one of the best drivers in the history of the sport and go on and do your own thing with uh, the support of Dodge and, and be a part of that startup and having a lot of success, frankly. I mean, having all that speed between Bill Elliott and Casey Kane and all the stuff they had. Uh, I mean, that's two successful ventures for one person and one great mind in Ray Everham. And that's why he's a Hall of Famer as well. So, that that was one of the first that came to mind in terms of a, a NASCAR industry person uh, serving as a mainstay for you know multiple successful teams. The other one, and I hope you know this name, Alba Cologne. Alba Cologne is an engineer. Oh yeah, uh, she was the program manager at Chevy starting in 2001. And think about the run they went on the next decade plus, all the wins, all the championships. Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, Tony Stewart. All the winning Chevy did from 2001 on, she is a big part of that and responsible for it. And David, she then is now went on to uh, work exclusively for Hendrick Motorsports. And I think that is slowly being turned around after some of their lean years. And so I think she will bring the success she had working at Team Chevy and bring it over exclusively to Hendrick Motorsports. And again, if you don't know the name Alva Cologne, go Google it right now. David, in the garage there is a small list of people who get universal respect in almost like kiss the ring type of respect, like Roger Penske walking through the garage. People will stop, shake his hand, uh, show their reverence. Alba Cologne is one of those few people, and it's cool to see because her brain, her brain power, and everything she contributed to both Chevy and now Hendrick Motorsports, it is well respected, and I think she b belongs on this list. That is a fantastic example. Uh, I think I've got one that, that can compare. Suitcase Jake 
Elder is the man for me. He was the crew chief to the stars. Alan, he is credited as a crew chief with winning races with David Pearson, Bobby Allison, Mario Andretti, Benny Parsons, Daryl Waltrip, Davey Allison, and Dale Earnhardt. But it might actually be incalculable as to who Elder's brain has benefited. Alan, just for you, here is Rusty Wallace's take on Jake Elder as told to Mike Mulhern in 2008. Rusty on Jake, he was the guy you would call when you needed some help. If your car wasn't running right and you were confused, you'd want to call Jake and say, hey, can you come bail me out? And he could help you fix it. I called him once when my car wasn't running right and asked Jake, can you come over and crew chief this car for me? And he said, all right, just one race. And he came over with his toolbox, which was filled with so much doggone prehistoric stuff that it was unreal. He had the string out and the levels and said, you do this and this. And I took it to Charlotte and had my best run ever. We were able to... uh Tie NASCAR to a movie we both love. And let me just tell the listeners out there, uh, you know, we got to talking and I knew we both liked the movie. I quoted an obscure line and David gave me 17 more layers of tidbits about that one line. That's what I knew that we were, uh, we were onto something, at least when trying to tie this movie to NASCAR because we, we both understood and really loved this movie from 30 years ago. So I hope you guys have enjoyed it. If you've made it through this far, we're now going to talk about Sonoma. So I appreciate you positive regression listeners sticking with us. David, I thought we pulled it off. So let's talk Sonoma right now because Sonoma is going through its own change. Talk about a, a blast from the past like that movie. Uh, we're getting the carousel back at Sonoma. I think the first time since 1995. And if you don't know what the carousel is, it's an addition of, I guess, one, two, what, four more turns to Sonoma, uh, a part of the track that has not been raced on for a long, long time. They will be on it. And none of the drivers have ever raced on this part of the course. So we have uh, some questions and some answers that we have to figure out. Uh, does that radically change what we know about this track? This is certainly the thing to watch this weekend. Uh, Alan, here is what we know for certain. The carousel introduces two high-speed braking points that could... Uh, should provide opportunities for passing. And that's cool. We don't get a lot of high-speed braking points in NASCAR anymore. So th- this addition could, uh, sp- could mean excitement. The addition of the carousel means that the part of the old turn four that saw a lot of passing is no longer part of the course. It might mean a wash in regards to passing opportunities uh, each lap. Uh, here's what we think, though. This will affect the restart dynamic. Uh, Alan, every week on this pod, it seems we discuss vast differences in restart retention between the two grooves. And in last year's race at Sonoma, the disparity was less than 5%. It was 71% and 67% for each groove. Fairly even, uh, based on the numbers that I've been rattling off every week. But the road course has been changed. I think it may still yield to good restarters, 
But that advantage uh, that those drivers had that were hugging that inside line going into turn four, <laughs> it's gone because, well, turn four is gone. And one stat that we dug up, you know, in the last 21 races, David, I believe there are 16 different uh, road course winners. So it seems like the field is kind of open. So are there any clear favorites out there in Sonoma? Uh, for me, it's Kevin Harvick. Uh, he hasn't finished worse than sixth since 2014. And, uh, I mean, that's a pretty solid record. Uh, this place plays to his off throttle ability. So I'd imagine he would adjust well to the carousel. Uh, Clint Boyer additionally stands out as a driver with a good Sonoma record and is also a pronounced passer on the tight corner track. I like that they're both, I like all, all three road courses are different, David. And you can't just apply, I think, the same skills or assume the same drivers will do, uh, or be favorites at each different one of the three different road courses. That part of it, I enjoy. And I, you know, I don't want to get too crazy adding too many road courses and everything. I just want them to be representative. And I'm glad a road course is represented in the playoff. I think that makes Sonoma and Watkins Glen all the more important. Uh, maybe you can work on your skills there. How do you feel about the three road courses that we now have? Personally, I'm kind of conflicted because in my eyes, a well-executed road course race is one where everyone is hitting their mark. Uh, it is an affair that contains little passing and is often dictated by pit strategy. And to American racing fans, that probably sounds boring, but that's kind of the expectation I have uh, of NASCAR drivers. I hold Cup Series drivers in very high regard. Uh, when a lot of NASCAR fans say that they want more road course races, it feels like they're rooting for the sloppy, crash-filled clown shows, I guess. You know, you know the people. It's the ones that they, they say road courses are the new short tracks. I don't know that I want that. I think this weekend in Sonoma could offer an opportunity for a driver to put on a masterclass and have it be appreciated as a great drive. Uh, these drivers we watch are unbelievably good. They are elite at their craft and their talent deserves to be on display. And I hope that we get a memorable performance uh, from anyone, someone this weekend. I want some playoff positioning drama, David, because right now we've only had, we've had very few winners in the Cup Series so far this year. And if you look at the playoff picture in terms of the, the rest of uh, the playoff field, it's kind of separating itself and, and really coming into clear view where I don't expect much drama. Like right now, Eric Jones is the best car really outside of the playoff picture. And so what, what's that? that? That's one one driver, one team you have to worry about jumping into the, to the top 16. That's not much drama right now. So I want a little more. Maybe we can get someone down there like a Michael McDowell, a great, skilled road course racer. I know he probably doesn't have the Ooh. speed or it's not the same organization level in terms of speed and equipment and all that stuff. But you never know. Sometimes, sometimes we get surprises. Maybe maybe it's pit strategy. Maybe it's just all out raw skill or speed. Maybe someone like Michael McDowell can 
shake things up a little bit, or even like an Eric Jones putting himself in, getting a victory, a new winner, something. I want some playoff standings drama, David. And just remember, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We've got all your devices covered. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That kind of stuff really does help us. It helps the podcast gain visibility. We know a lot of you like it. Tell your friends. Leave us a comment. It really does help. Your help in spreading the word is just so appreciated. If you have any questions, you've heard us answer them here before. Dedicate the whole episode to it. So we do want to answer them on the podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at PosRegPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. And David, just a special shout out to my colleague and racing and broadcasting legend, Daryl Waltrip, who signs off for the final time. If you've ever watched a race on Fox since the beginning, Daryl Waltrip has been a part of it, and that is a hell of a thing to say. Part of this sport, contributing to it for 50 years plus, that's pretty damn cool. So, Daryl, it's been an honor to uh, follow you and call you something of a colleague, even though you're on a, such a higher level in terms of the sport. It's been really cool to be uh, to be your teammate. Thank you for listening. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Stay positive, everybody. We'll see you next week. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a lounge singer to be their office receptionist. Hello, this is Mickey Marquis, and you've reached the office of Doug and Associates. <laughs> Thank you very much. Catch me Tuesday nights at the Hotel Johnson. Hello? But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Doug and Associates, this is Mickey Marquis. Hello? For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today.